Please welcome to the stage, Morgan Neville. Thank you. How are you? Thank you for joining us. Good. Thanks for having me. This um, is a great crowd, so thank you for coming out. Isn't it? It's a great movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm wondering whether you had actually seen any of the footage from the other side of the wind when you decided to kind of take the plunge and make this your project, or was there just a hunch here that this was a story that well, was going to be worth... There were a few different things. Um, so Orson... There are many different versions of what Orson actually edited, but the only thing that was known to survive was kind of a bootlegged copy of maybe 45 minutes worth of scenes mm -hmm. that Orson had cut that had no narrative sense to them. It was kind of the car scene he had actually edited himself. And, um, and I'd seen that, and it was both incredibly intriguing and incredibly perplexing. And it was really, uh, Josh Karp, the journalist, wrote a book called Orson Welles' Last Movie about four years ago. And there was an excerpt of it that ran before it was published. I read that, uh, and I just thought, if I could ever get my hands on that raw footage, I would love to tell the story. It's a perfect kind of Wellesian story, because he's making a film about a filmmaker at the end of his life that comes mm -hmm. back to America and can't finance and finish his film uh, as a film within a film, as a documentary. And then, you know, if, if Orson kind of gives you license to, to embrace the meta of it all. Sure, of course. And, um, and I was always a huge Wells fan, but I never saw an opportunity to tell a new Wells story until this came along. And this last chapter of Wells's life, um, which is really his return to America in 1970 through his death in 85, in, at least in America, he was seen as a has-been mm -hmm. and uh, popping up doing wine commercials and you know frosted pea commercials and things like that and on talk shows. But nobody ever saw the work he was doing in this time. And, and in his mind, um, you know, he said, he took these acting jobs to do, to do all these films, but he said, as an actor, uh, I'm a prostitute, but as a director, I remain virginal. Nice. And there was this idea that, you know, acting was a base art form that came so easily to him that he didn't think of it as anything special. So he would do anything when it came to acting, and he did virtually anything when it came to acting. Um, but the, the purity of his kind of resolve and... Um, commitment to his directing work was something that I found so inspirational uh, just as a director and as a filmmaker. Um, I mean, the other part of it was, for me personally, he had done a documentary called F for Fake, and I don't know how many of you ever seen this film. He made it in the middle of making The Other Side of the Wind. And uh, I'll give a plug. There's an amazing Criterion collection right, yeah. of F for Fake, which is incredible. Uh, and that documentary I saw in my early 20s, and it was one of the things that made me want to be a documentary filmmaker. So that film hugely informed my thinking about this film. It's interesting as well because it's, it, you mentioned having a, a kind of prior love for Wells, and the film mm -hmm. is made... It's, it's a, a particular kind of voice, I suppose, which is one where somebody is obviously perhaps even a Wells obsessive, certainly a Wells lover, mm -hmm. but there is this quality of the untold story and you, your own fascination with the story and your own fascination with the footage and actually with kind of unfolding this astonishing narrative. That really kind of comes through, I think. Well, and it's, well, I'm, I'm glad. I mean, it's, it's, it was all a mystery because um, though I'd seen these few scenes, essentially what happened, just to, to go back to the story, was uh, I read this book. I said, I would love to get this footage. I talked to Josh and we, he ended up helping to produce the film. 
But he said, Frank Marshall has been working for decades, which I knew, to get this footage out in the world and to finish the film. And he said, uh, so he hooked me up with Frank and, uh, and the producer, Philip Rimshaw, who was working with him. And they said, you're in luck because in about six weeks, we're going to get this footage and we're going to be in business. And you can make a documentary and we'll help you and we'll do the feature, and, but there'll be separate projects. And there was no idea that they would be released together or anything like that. Um, and those six weeks became three and a half years right. uh, <laughs> as things like that happen. Six weeks often do. So even though I spent you know, more than four years on the project compared to the 40 years Frank spent, I think I got off light, light, <laughs> uh, lightly. Um, but when we got the footage, it had been stored. Fortunately, it was very well stored in a, in a vault in Paris and was shipped over to Technicolor. We had to get a negative cut cutter, a legendary negative cutter, Mo Henry, at retirement to come back and prep the negative <laughs> right. to Telecine. And we were getting these daily shipments from Telecine of the footage, and it was, uh, none of it was organized. There were no you know, notes in, mm -hmm. in the cans or anything. So it was like getting these random puzzle pieces every day and trying to figure out what is this and where does it go? Um, and you know, my job as the documentarian was, you know, I didn't have to figure out exactly what the Orson's picture was. I had to figure out what I wanted to pull from it. But having the opportunity, just as a film lover, to be able to watch 100 hours of Orson Welles' dailies was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. You know, and to hear him direct and understand his process and his, um, and as he says in the film, his sense of, Chaos, you know, or accidents. His, his, well, I was going to know, ask so. about that because, yeah, obviously, I mean, one of the most tantalizing ideas in the film is that sense he talks about presiding over accidents. Yeah. And yet, as a documentarian, particularly in this context, yeah. you know, faced with this stuff, yeah. I wondered how much room you had to preside over accidents or how much you had to be the sort of, you know, the, the actual the stern voice of all Well, it's, I think of it kind of the opposite way um, in my job description. I mean, there's a famous quote, uh, I believe it's Hitchcock, said that in scripted films, the director is God. In documentaries, God is the director. Right. So I take that to mean in real life, we can't control how things work. Chaos is endemic to real life. And the job of the documentarian is to try and find patterns and narrative sense in the randomness and chaos of real life. So I feel like I deal with that all day long. Sure. So you know, my sense was trying to there was extreme chaos in this case, you know, and, and it's not just the chaos of the footage. It's the chaos of all of the people in the Wells universe. And, um, and it's true to say, I mean, there's a reason this film didn't come out for 40 years, which is um, that the people Orson had in his universe were big characters with mm -hmm. big opinions uh, who didn't necessarily agree about anything. And I had to try and get them all to do this documentary, which I did, fortunately, you know, but they, all those stars had, had to align. Um, and in addition to it, I mean, the other tidbit, which may be apocryphal, but I've, I've heard it from several people, was that for the last several decades of his life, Orson ever refused to sign a piece of paper that had any legal, right. you know, no contracts, no anything. He just thought, well, I'm, I'm Orson. If I don't sign anything, you can't ever hold me to anything. Sure, sure. Of course, the result of that was in the wake of his death, um, Everything was a complete mess. You know, there were there were um, decades of lawsuits, and I chose not to tell, to do that documentary. Um, 
because <laughs> and you could do a whole documentary. It wouldn't be a, the it wouldn't be a happy documentary. Um, but there were you know just years of near misses and and everything else. Um, so there was plenty of chaos for me to try and tame. So I didn't I didn't need to create chaos. And you mentioned I mean assembling your cast. You know many of whom obviously the surviving cast from the yeah. film and people who were in the universe at that point. How tricky was that? Because obviously it's one of those things where it feels on screen, like obviously, you know, the film is the hub and people just gravitate to the hub yeah. and this is all just there. Yeah. But it, there will be documentarians in the room who will be aware of quite how many years can go by and how much energy is spent. It's interesting that, because um, I ended up, in the beginning I thought I'll just do a few kind of key interviews and maybe have just a few, and maybe even just do it as an audio-only um, kind of telling. And so the other thing I'll say is, we got the kind of green light to make the film um, before we had the footage. Right. So I started doing preliminary interviews before I'd seen a frame of the film. Uh, I mean, I'd seen that kind of selects reel. So I'd done first interviews with Peter Bogdanovich and uh, other people, and, I, and Beatrice Wells and other people, um, when I was still kind of fishing, trying to figure out what it was. And, and as I talked to more and more people, um, I, f I realized that Everybody had a very strong opinion, and everybody had something to say. And that trying to, letting these voices be a chorus more, rather than trying to kind of explain every bit of it, and that the, that, that, that allowed me to use, I mean, there are more than 40 interviews in the, in the film. And part of it is, I realized, is that for virtually everybody, probably every single person that worked on this film, it was indelible in their life. Uh, for many of them, it was the first or maybe second film they worked on, all of the crew and all of that. Um, and for them, they remembered every moment of it. You know, there wasn't a single person that worked on The Other Side of the Wind that hasn't had it on their IMDb for decades, you know, ready for this. It was like something that there was a, for most of the people, there was a huge appetite to, I finally get to talk about this thing that I've been boring my friends with for decades or my spouse or whomever, like, I, you know, I... I really want to talk about it and go back and revisit that. And for many of the people who worked on the film, um, they dubbed themselves uh, Visto, which is Volunteers in Service to Orson Welles. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and the, they, even during the movie, they called themselves Visto. But for years after, and still to this day, um, when we premiered the film at Venice and Telluride, Frank Marshall had hats and T-shirts made that said Visto, and they were right. they were all buttons, and you know, and like <laughs> they're all they all came back together, and it was just the sense of like completing something that's been hanging over them for half a century. Um, but it's this very multi-layered narrative, and I was going to say, I mean, you seem very judicious. It was very expert in terms of how much of those individual stories you told. I mean, Bogdanovich and Bogdanovich's mm -hmm. his role within the film, but then you know his career as it unfolded afterwards. He's this. There's a tragedy there to the story, which obviously you bring out. But you were very expert at kind of putting a certain amount of weight and then moving on to, and, and sharing the narrative weight amongst the characters while keeping awesome up there. Well, yeah, I mean, because essentially the film, I mean, as Orson's films were generally about two guys and their relationship uh, and the betrayal therein. Um, to me, the film at its essence is about Orson and Peter, which is what The Other Side of the Wind was about, this Hannaford and Otter Lake, the two characters. Um, and the kind of twist on the betrayal in that relationship, which is, you know, Peter Bogdanovich did adore Orson and to this day adores Orson. I mean, there are other things 
we had talked about that you know aren't in the film, but some of the things that Peter did for Orson were you know um, famously in the early '70s, Pauline Kael, who was the leading film critic in America at the time wrote this kind of barn-burning piece called Raising Cain, where she argued that Orson didn't deserve his Oscar for Citizen Kane, that Herman Mankiewicz deserved it alone, and this was like a, a wound for Orson. And he had Peter write this full-throated takedown of Pauline Kael in Esquire magazine. At the time, she was a leading film critic, and he was one of the hottest young directors in America. So to take on sure. the film critic because your mentor asked you to was mm -hmm. no small ask. Um, but Peter did it, and he did it again with a British critic, uh, Charles Heim, mm -hmm. who was very kind of critical of Orson. There was kind of that backlash in the critical community at the time, and kind of the anti-auteurists, you know, found Orson the perfect vehicle to argue against, you know, the kind of the Andrew Sarises and the auteurists in, in the world. Um, so Peter, at that time, and even finishing the film today, has such love for Orson. And Orson writes this role in The Other Side of the Wind where the Peter character betrays the Orson character, essentially, in a predictive way, saying, you know, you will betray me someday because that's what everybody does to somebody else. And in a way, Orson betrays Peter. Right. <laughs> which is, you know, the grand irony of it. And the other relationship is between Gary Graber and, and Orson, who's the only person who didn't betray Orson. Uh, at all because Gary gave up his entire life for Orson. You know, his family, his marriages, his career, he gave it all up for Orson. And that was the kind of loyalty that Orson demanded. Sure. Um, so very, very rich. <laughs> uh, and it was, yeah, it was fantastic kind of material to get into. And in terms of, of your relationship with the other side of the wind as the director, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm wondering when you're visually, actually, mm -hmm. when you're thinking about your approach to the interviewees, how much of what you're doing there, which seems quite particular, yeah. how much of that is shaped by the other side of the wind and maybe kind of, I don't know, striking a sort of almost a kind of, a, a, putting clear blue water, I suppose, aesthetically as well, yeah. saying, between the film and the documentary. And I think part of it was feeling like the other side of the wind is told, um, as, you, as you see, as a documentary, of this, uh, an assemblage of found footage mm -hmm. of cineasts and news crews and people who are shooting this birthday party for Jay Canaford. Uh, and it's incredibly rough stuff. And Orson was shooting in Super 8 and 16 and 35 and color and black and white. And, and so I felt like there was a certain kind of license to employ that documentary voice. But the other thing I thought a lot about was uh, in Kane itself, the structural device is the journalist going around and interviewing everybody about who was Charles Foster Kane. And this kind of idea of showing the process of the interviews, not right. hiding that we're interviewing, right. but actually this is an investigation that we're being very open about. Um, because I think, you know, in both those films, um, Orson was very open about it being this, uh, an investigation, you know, that we, you see the means of production in those things. I mean, I wondered across the whole, the whole body of your work, really, how quickly you find, a, or how important it is for you to, to, to quickly find a visual way of telling the story. So, because I'm from a journalistic background, mm -hmm. I think you were originally yeah, as well. And journalism is about words on a page, and it's all yeah. about structure. But obviously, documentary, you're moving things into a different area. You're mm -hmm. taking that same structure and that same need to kind of put information across. Mm -hmm. But you're having to do it visually. You're having to speak in film. So does it yeah. become, is it something that you need to get established very quickly? This is the story. But also, this is how I'm actually going to present the story. It is, and sometimes you discover some of that while you're either while you're shooting or while you're editing. I mean, the thing that was 
the most different about this film was, again, going back to F for Fake, that was kind of like a, a North Star for us in thinking about approach. And F for Fake is an incredibly edited film. You know, it's very dense, it's very fast. Um, and it's interesting, you know, Orson started his career as really a cinematographer's director. I mean, with Greg Tolan, and he had the machinery of RKO and big studios and the opening of um, Touch of Evil and the, kind of the access to do these shots. As he had smaller and smaller budgets and moved to Europe and had less control, he became very much an editor's director. And he would travel with a Steenbeck everywhere. He always had two hotel rooms wherever he was, one for his editing. And he loved to edit and re-edit and re-edit and change the film and editing. And in that way, um, I felt like it gave us license to just try things in editing. So it was really kind of an editing feed. My two great editors, Jason Zeldis and Aaron Wickenden, you know, the three of us just went down the rabbit hole doing it. And I, I think our first cut was so, because you know, we were just really kind of pushing it, and I think the first cut we put together was just incomprehensible. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask about that because you were talking about the, you know, the, the kind of the process of actually bringing together your interviews and finding yeah. out what your story was. But yes, at the other end of the process, I mean, I'm assuming there must have been a few cuts before we got to the final cut. Yes, yeah. I mean, there were several iterations, but but I think part of what Orson came to do and. Um, and fake, I mean, the main experience of finishing watching Effort Fake is, is the moment you finish it, you say, oh, I need to watch that again right now mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's that dense and that challenging on the viewer. The Other Side of the Wind is also a film that does not throw the viewer many, um, many hands or, uh, you know, there's no uh, flotation device to help you. Um, so, and it's worth saying that if, if it wasn't clear, that the other side of the wind, there is a complete cut of that film that is going up on Netflix the same day this goes up on Netflix. So you will be able to see both. That's fascinating, um, okay. So November 2nd is the day. And I think you've all done it right. Um, seeing the documentary first <laughs> will make the viewing of the feature um, that much richer. You know, I've talked to many people who've seen it, and, but I think the consensus is generally if you see the documentary first, it will, it will really help. I mean, you kind of get to, you're very, again, you're very expert in sort of steering away from the rosebud angle, but you do throw yeah. up this intriguing idea at the end, which is, which seems, you present very compelling yeah. evidence for it that actually Orson deliberately walked away from completing the film. Um, yeah, it's funny because Orson, later in life, Orson really came to think of the rosebud as kind of a, a, a trite mm -hmm, mm -hmm. plot device. Um, and, you know, I think we tried to, I mean, the kind of the two, and I'm not sure if Orson, I actually, my mind is not made up on uh, whether Orson would have finished the film. And I, I think it's because I think there were times when he would have and times when he wouldn't have. I think, I mean, that's the thing with Orson is, um, he was mercurial, he was, um, you know, truth with him was kind of kaleidoscopic. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I talked to who would say Orson was the most fatherly, warm, paternal person I ever met. And somebody said he was the most dictatorial, stern, right. you know, tough person I ever met. And people said Orson was so committed to finishing this film. Other people saying Orson never wanted to finish this film. And I think it's all true. Right. He's like a one-man Rashomon. It's yeah. Like all... one, and because he was an actor at heart. So I feel like if he was having this conversation, he might 
completely believe one thing, and he'd step out there and say the exact opposite. And he was totally comfortable with that. You know, I think that's, I think all those people experienced that reaction in a real way. Um, and that must have, the only, you know, that the evidence points to the fact that it was Orson. <laughs> the grand puppet master. Yeah, exactly. And I think he would love the fact that people were debating these things now. Um, you know, and even in my film, I kind of, you know, cheekily suggest that maybe this is the other side of the wind, you know, right. <laughs> that maybe um, this would have been what Orson would have done. And I, you know, I think, um, and he did talk about it, you know, and he had, after Effort Fake and filming Othello, which were the last two films he ever completed were documentaries, um, he came to really think about that form in a, in a different way. Uh, and particularly as the other side of the wind kind of aged from, I think if it had come out in the early 70s when he first shot it, it would have been very groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. But I think mm -hmm. by the early 80s when he was trying to kind of still finish it, it probably would have felt dated. Sure. And so I think he was thinking about how do I recontextualize it in a way that makes it fresh. Um, and now again, it's kind of become like a really interesting timepiece to go back and watch. As you can probably tell, I'm deeply fascinated by this film. I could <laughs> monopolize the conversation all afternoon, but I don't want to do that. Um, if you have a question for Morgan uh, about the film or his career, please raise your hand. Yeah. I'll try and get around to everyone. So just here at the end, there'll be a microphone will be thrust into your hand. One of the things you alluded to um, a few minutes earlier, Morgan, about the little discoveries that you make during the, the production of a project. And I always find these things sort of fascinating, the, the little things that sort of you maybe don't know about them, but suddenly a gorgeous little bit of footage drops mm -hmm. into your lap, or maybe something you heard was out there, but you couldn't mm -hmm. find it. And I'm sort of interested if, if there were any of those sort of wondrous little discoveries that sort of dropped unexpectedly into your lap during the, the uh, production of this project. I mean, so many. I mean, there were some that dropped and some that vanished. And, you know, I mean, one, for instance, is several people in interviews were talking about midgets. Right. <laughs> and I didn't think, you know, Rich Little tells the story and they'll put them in later and... Other people say, I never saw midgets. And you know, it kept coming up. And then one day we get some footage and there are midgets. <laughs> We're like, oh, I, I, it's real. Uh, you just don't know, you know, as we're talking to people, trying to piece it together. Um, there's another story um, that somebody told me. I never found the shot, uh, or exactly as it was described, but somebody said they were driving around the desert in Arizona shooting. And they came across a sign for like a, a weird sign for like an armadillo crossing or something. And Orson said, stop the cars, you know, get the camera, shoot the sign. And they shot the sign and somebody in the crew said, Orson, why are, why are we shooting this sign? What does it mean? He said, I have no idea, but Paul and Kale will spend a year trying to make sense of it. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's good, as good a reason as any. Exactly. For Orson, that was the best reason. <laughs> I mean, we were talking yeah. outside earlier about, about archive. I wonder, I mean, from yeah. what you know, do you think there may be more footage out there somewhere? In someone's, someone's garage in Arizona, there is something. Or have we seen everything? Um, I mean, there were a couple of little bits that were missing, including some of the final audio that was never found. Um, but I think the vast majority, 99% of it, was collected here. I mean, Orson was cutting it on different continents at different times, and you know, um, and there were different work prints floating around. I think we could possibly find a, someday a work print. Okay. Um, but 
you know, uh, undiscovered Welsiana is legendary, whether it's the lost South American print of Magnificent Ampersons, the director's cut, right. or uh, Don Quixote, or The Deep, or all of these mm -hmm. things. Yeah, um, he was kind of made for it, wasn't he? Absolutely, and I think he, he uh, there's that speech, you hear Jean Moreau talking when we see the Venice footage and saying, I imagine Orson with these rooms, locked doors with under the bed, or these different films. And it's not that far from the truth. <laughs> Absolutely. The whole shadow career, isn't it? I'm sorry, yeah. I jumped back in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you for a very wonderful film, thank and I you. hope it does very well. I just wanted to ask you, uh, supposedly, Wells said that, um, he said, uh, Citizen Kane was a good film, but Chimes at Midnight will get me into heaven. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, the fact that, that uh, the Battle of Agincourt was done with about seven mm -hmm. extras, yeah. and it's still one of the great battle That's scenes amazing. in all of movies. Uh, I wonder what you felt about that. I mean, I, Chimes is an, an incredible film, and just the kind of the um, I mean, the, the the idea of piecing together, rewriting Shakespeare by taking all the bits of Falstaff from the different plays and molding them into this one narrative is so um, strong. And I think Wells as Falstaff is brilliant in the film too. Um, but the action scenes are incredible. Um, I heard a story um, from two people, so I, I guess I'll believe it to be true, that um, when Mel Gibson was doing Braveheart, he so admired the battle scenes that he got a print of Chimes at Midnight and went through it frame by frame and noticed that there are certain moments in the battle scene where Orson would double a single frame. Right. It's so subtle you couldn't even really see it to the eye, but he would do these, and in doing this on film with tape, you know, is not an easy thing to do. It's not like now in the digital age where he was doing these things just to add this extra element of heightened reality. That's always the big imponderable as well, isn't it? It's how Wells in the age of digital, what would have... Oh, I think he would have... It would have been the greatest thing ever. I think right. everybody who knew Wells said if, if he could be shooting a film on a phone and editing on a laptop, and it would have been heaven for him. Right. You know, because he was constantly handcuffed by the expense and the the logistics, you know, the logistics of trying to make films. There was a hand uh, all the way down this line. <clears throat> Is that a microphone or a person? Yeah. Oh, on this side. Okay. Oh, sorry. So we're over <laughs> here. Shall we just project? Yeah. It's fine. Okay. Fine. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Well, the first thing, to use a narrator is not something people really do in documentaries these days, but Orson loved the narratorial voice. You know, he narrated not only all the radio he did um, with the Mercury Theater, but many of his films, the trailers for his films, every nonfiction thing he ever did, and this idea that the narrator is also not uh, an innocent bystander or voice of God, that they're maybe even unreliable at times. So, so why... Coming, it was me trying to think of somebody who could bridge certain things, this kind of idea of, of stage and screen, of kind of a theatrical class, somebody who also could be serious but could be ironic too. And, um, and I'd done something with Alan before, and he loved the idea, and so he jumped in. Just a hedge, yeah. Uh, shall I just? Sure. I think you may have to. Uh, to me, it's like, I, I, sorry, I've never read a bio of, of Orson, so 
I do know that uh, he came off the radio and uh, made Citizen Kane, and that that was the, as I understand it, forgive me if I'm wrong, the first film where you had a, a take longer than 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. uh, so he well. changed the, the, the course of cinema by doing that, by having three-minute takes and getting them to invent a camera in depth and stuff. And I've always assumed that that was because he didn't know anything about filmmaking, and he was such a genius, he just made it all up and broke all the rules. So I'm just wondering if you, uh, it was his first film going to be Heart of Darkness. I it was, yeah. Yeah, I did see the, the reading of it. I, to be honest, I didn't agree with the, his take on it. The yeah. guy was American, he took the intended up the river. Actually, the, the script that Orson wrote for Heart of Darkness is crazy. <laughs> it's. The whole opening of it is the birdcage. I don't know if you ever, it's just so out there um, where he's talking to the camera and telling the audience to close their eyes and all of these things. I've made masterpiece, you know. right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Um, you know, and Orson, you know, essentially at that point was one of the great theater directors, you know, and, and understood lighting, but really, um, I mean, part of his long takes. I mean, there were a lot of films with long takes at that time, just in the early talkie days and, and all of that, but I think his sense of, of lighting and depth of field and everything were so groundbreaking. Um, but I think a lot of it had to do more with his kind of narrative structure that he was so revolutionary. Uh, and, and part of why I didn't lean heavily into that is if you want to see more Orson documentaries, there's a pile of them. So, and I feel like that was well trod upon territory. And there's some great documentaries. The Battle Over Citizen Kane is one, you know, that where you can really get into those stories too. Yes, just here. I wondered if uh, your film and Orson's uh, film, are they going to get a theatrical release? Or a they are. And we've been doing festivals with both films, sometimes separately, sometimes together. Uh, and I think The Other Side of the Windscreen, yeah, and Leon this week. Um, and both films are gonna open theatrically in London. I know our film's gonna be the ICA mm -hmm. starting November 2nd, um, if anybody wants to tell anybody else. Um, but I'm not sure, maybe somebody knows where The Other Side of the Wind is opening, anybody? Okay, but it is going to open somewhere here, uh, for sure. Pro same day, I'm sure, November 2nd. Yeah. We'll have one more. Yes. Yes, you can. And I think we can actually do the microphone. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, hi. It's hi. absolutely brilliant. Um, Thank you. I liked uh, what you, all the stuff that told you about life that you did in it. I mean, you know, we're talking about how life doesn't make sense, I guess, and mm -hmm. just that end bit with Gary when they say... And it all came to nothing, and I think he would have done it all again. That mm -hmm. was such a brilliant bit of insight about friendship and love. And I just wondered, as, as a documentary maker, how mm -hmm. much did you approach something like this, thinking, I'm doing something about Orson, or, 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 or actually in your whole documentary project, I've seen other of your films. Yeah. What, what are you trying to do? It's funny because, you know, for years when I would start making documentaries, I would speak to a subject of the documentary and kind of give them my speech, which is, you know, this is going to be like therapy for you, and, you know, trust me, and all these things. Um, and it took years for me to actually realize or fess up to the idea that, of course, it's therapy for me. You know, of course, I'm picking films because I'm investigating th things about myself. And particularly, you know, um, this film and the other film, I'll give a plug to, I haven't two films in the LFF this year. You do? Uh, the other one's called uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, 
which is about Fred Rogers, who's known as Mr. Rogers in America, um, who was the most famous children's television host in American history. Just gonna, I, I wondered, actually, yes, because I, mean, I don't know if it's the first to have two films in the, in the festival once, but it's a rare occurrence. Were you working on the films simultaneously? Uh, yes, but not editing at the same time. Right. That was the thing. That would be too far. Right. Um, so we went right from finishing editing the Mr. Rogers film into editing this film. So I was collecting the interviews for this film while I was editing that film. Um, so it um, and they were very different. They're very different films, <laughs> you know. And we were starting to discuss this outside, um, you know. But they're both films that, for me, actually were about the creative process and about a lot of kind of emotional ideas of, I mean, basically the one, if I think about the great kind of common denominator between Orson Welles and Fred Rogers, is that they were both people who had a internal singular vision of what they wanted to do and they could care less what the world thought. They believed in what they wanted to do. And as an artist, there's no kind of greater North Star than thinking about that, those kinds of people, you know, the people who are immune to the world. It's, it's such a fascinating kernel because it's weird sometimes with Orson, isn't it? For all his genius, he is sometimes thought of as, as he's almost presented as a cautionary tale. And yet, mm -hmm. for exactly the reason you mentioned, the idea of just art and only art and it just coming from, I mean, that, mm -hmm. it, it feels very rare now, but all the more precious for it. So it almost yeah. feels like the film is kind of reclaiming him as this heroic figure, I, even, in the midst, even as the film is falling apart. No, and I think, you know, Orson believed that film was the greatest art form man had ever created. And... I think the tragedy, in a way, is that the rest of the world, for the most part, sees film as commerce, not art. It's a very expensive art form. And to do what he was doing, again and again, um, crashed into the reality of how the rest of the world saw it as a business. Um, you know, What he needed was a Medici or a patron or somebody who would just pay him an Annapurna, I don't know who would have done it, you know, to let Orson go make his films. Um, and he never found that person. Um, and I think that's more the tragedy. And again, I think if he was here today, he, he could be making a movie a year, you know. Right. It'd be so different, um, but it was just so difficult at that time. Orson on YouTube is an intriguing I, He'd idea, have a right? channel, it'd right. be great. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to have to leave it yeah. there. Um, okay. I think it's a fascinating film, please. Morgan Thank Neville. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you very much. Pleasure. That's great. Okay. Thanks. I could have just, you know,